When's the last time you saw a movie with an ending that just left you feeling down? You know, with a really anticlimactic ending maybe, or with the kind of ending where it's getting to the end and you're thinking, please, please, please don't let it end that way. But it does. Well, a teenage boy played a prank on his mother with the movie Toy Story 3. Toy Story, of course, is a story about toys. And they navigate life together. They get involved in some pretty strange situations as they try to save each other from things like kidnappings, things like getting lost. And as they try to get closer to the boy who owns them, Andy. Well, if you haven't seen Toy Story 3, don't worry. I don't think I'm about to ruin anything for you. But if you have seen that movie, you'll know that there is a scene toward the end of it when it looks like some of the lovable toys like Woody and Buzz and a few others are about to meet their end in a fiery volcano-like flame. They're sliding toward the edge of this abyss into some flames and it looks like it's going to all be over for them. Well, the mother of the teenage boy hadn't seen the movie yet, so the boy hatched a plan. He edited the movie so that just as the toys begin sliding to the edge of the fiery abyss, the movie ends. The credits roll down and it looks like the toys fell into the fire. After editing the movie that way, he invited his mum to watch it with him. Now, this boy's poor mum sat there for the whole entire movie waiting for that classic happy feeling kind of ending that we love getting from Pixar. And what she got instead was the most devastating ending imaginable. And the son somehow kept a straight face throughout the whole thing. He let his mum believe that that was the ending for a whole night and into the next day. The mum saw it and she said, that's not the ending, that can't be the ending, that's terrible. And the son let her believe it until the next day. But then he told her the relieving truth. That there is so much more to that story. Well, when we read 1 Kings chapter 11, it kind of feels like the first ending the mum saw, doesn't it? We are hoping for a great and happy ending, but things just go downhill. As we've read through the narrative of Solomon in 1 Kings chapters 1 to 11, uh, we've seen a king who desires wisdom and that wisdom being given to him by God. We've seen God bless Solomon with wealth and honor. We've seen the temple being built and seen a great celebration of the Israelites as they rejoice that their God is with them. I mean, there have been some serious highs in these chapters. But always in the background, we have had that question, haven't we? Will Solomon remain faithful to God as God has been faithful to him? Will Solomon continue to live in obedience to God Or will he turn to the idols around him of things like security, comfort, wealth and political power that the nations around him cling to? Well, Last week we heard God warn Solomon that if he did not continue in devotion to God and God alone, that the Israelites would lose everything. They would be cut off from the land, the temple would be destroyed... And the nations would look at them and know that the Israelites were facing God's judgment for worshipping idols instead of worshipping the God of Israel, the true living God. Well, this morning we see the worst happen. King Solomon, rather than following God in obedience and devotion to him alone, turns to idolatry. And it kind of feels like the end of the story for the Israelites. The credits are rolling down on a declining kingdom of Israel. But 
in the midst of what appears to be the end of Israel's time in the promised land of God being with them and blessing them, we read that whereas Solomon has failed in his devotion to God and leading the Israelites to him, God has not failed. God remains faithful to his promises and to his people. There is more to the story than the tragic end that we first see at the end of verse 13. On the outline today, you will see that it says, Divided devotion, a divided kingdom, and a faithful God. Point one, divided devotion. I was, I was walking down Hindley Street one day uh, on my way back from a catch-up with someone at Adelaide Uni uh, during my traineeship at another church. And as I walked past one of the pubs on Hindley Street, a man shouted out at me. He said, hey you! And I said, me? He said, yes. He said, come and have a beer with me. I thought, this is pretty strange. Uh, I told him that I couldn't actually have a beer with him because I was working that day, but that I'd sit down with him for a chat if he'd like. Uh, And he said that he'd like that. So I sat down. But then he said to me, he said, tell me what you do. And I said, well, I'm a Christian and I'm employed at a church at the moment. And he said, a Christian? Now, at this point, the way he said it, I kind of expected him to tell me to just get out of there and leave him alone. Uh, But instead, he said, a Christian? Really? Tell me all about it. I mean, it's not what you hear every day. But I said, okay. And I told him about who Jesus is and all about Christianity, all about what I did with my job. Uh, Then I asked him if he'd ever thought much about God or who Jesus is. And he said something really interesting. He said to me that he'd always believed that God is there. He said that just by looking out at the world that this was his conclusion. And he said that he'd done that church thing at Easter, the church thing at Christmas, but he'd never really taken it that seriously. I asked him why. If he believed that God was there, why didn't he try to get to know who he is more? Why didn't he try to learn what God really wants for him? And he said something like this. He said, because I reckon it's enough for me to believe that he's there. And if I don't do anything too bad, surely he'll be happy enough. I mean, why change the way I'm living now when life is good? See, this man had set the bar where he thought God would be happy for it to be. And he wasn't willing to consider what God actually wanted for him. This man was devoted to living his own way and wasn't that interested in finding out how God might want him to live. Uh, You might be here this morning and have a pretty similar outlook to that guy that I spoke to on Hindley Street. Or you might have been a Christian for a while or maybe even your whole life. But I think that something that is common to us all is that we all kind of set the bar where we think God wants it, and we navigate around it. Some of us will have set it up pretty high, some of us pretty low. But guaranteed, we all move that bar around from time to time in our lives. What we see in Solomon is that he ultimately does that same thing. The same thing that the man I met on Hindley Street described. Solomon ends up being devoted to living his own way, And not God's. We read in verse 1 that King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. 
Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. Now you might remember from our first week at looking at King Solomon that we read from Deuteronomy 10 God's command to the Israelites not to intermarry with the people of the land that God was giving the Israelites. We're reminded of that again in verse 2 where we are told that these women were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And then the line that we were really hoping that we wouldn't read. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Solomon does what God had commanded the Israelites not to do, and it's really in our faces. And we're told in verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Now, we need to stop and look closely at something. I think it's something that stands out just a little bit. I'm not sure if you noticed. Uh, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, what is with that? Can you imagine planning for 700 weddings, just how stressful that would be? And if that's not enough, having 700 wives, we're told that Solomon has a harem of 300 concubines. I mean, what, what's going on here? Well, you might remember from our first week looking at Solomon that we talked about marriage alliances amongst the different nations in the ancient Near East. So in the time that Solomon was alive, the way to keep peace between nations and any other political threats was to create marriage alliances. Marriage alliances meant peace between otherwise rival nations. It meant having security on your borders. It also meant more power, more wealth, more prestige. See, Solomon, the wealthiest king around, would have had people arriving all the time seeking to gain from his great wealth. People making promises in return to him. Making alliances with Solomon to ensure peace and continued relationship. Promises that were mutually beneficial. See, Solomon, by having 700 wives and agreeing to these alliances, would have been considered very wise by the standards of the nations around him. A very good and successful king, because he had alliances and peace with nations left, right and centre. But as we learnt two weeks ago, God doesn't want Solomon to be wise by the standards of the world. He wants Solomon to show true wisdom by living how God taught him to live by pursuing relationship with God, by being devoted to Him, the Creator of the world, who knows how people should live in His world. And Solomon's actions show that he ultimately wasn't devoted to God at all. Actually, he was devoted to living life his own way. In verse 4, we read that as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart's his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. That's been the measuring stick from the start for Solomon, hasn't it? We saw that in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 14, and also last week in chapter 9 verse 4. Solomon is told by God to walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did. See, God had always been after Solomon's heart. God had always wanted Solomon to pursue relationship with God and God alone above the world. He wants Solomon to show that love for God by being devoted to him 
and being faithful to him, just as God has been faithful to Solomon. But instead, Solomon allows his heart to be turned to other gods. Now, what we see here is more than just Solomon's sexual desire and his inability to remain faithful to one wife. Though I think it's, it's on plain display for everyone to see, you know, the whole 300 concubines thing included here, that that was also the case. But remember that those marriages brought peace, power, and wealth. See, these were the real gods that Solomon was devoted to. Those things he could see the nations around him scrambled for. Those things that he thought could bring him lasting happiness and joy and security and comfort. But they don't. Instead, that devotion just leads him further and further away from the God who has loved and cared for Solomon and the Israelites at every step of the way. In Deuteronomy 12 verse 2, God demanded the Israelites to destroy completely the high places where the nations worshipped. The Israelites were to worship God and God alone. But what do we see Solomon doing in this passage? In verse 7 and 8, not only did Solomon not destroy those high places, now he's making them himself. And not just one. He's making high places for all of his wives. As we read in verse 5, he bows down to these false gods alongside them. He worships those false gods instead of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Solomon shows divided devotion as his heart is turned by his wives and he becomes more devoted to living for things like wealth, security, pleasure and power in the world around him, turning away from God. And what is God's verdict for Solomon's actions? We're told in verse 6, Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. What we've been worried about all along is coming to pass. Solomon chooses not to remain faithful to God and pursue right relationship with him. And we're told in verses 9 and 10 that the Lord became angry with Solomon because of this, because his heart had turned away from the God of Israel, who'd appeared to him two times. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. See, just like that man I met on Hindley Street, Solomon was choosing to be devoted to his own way of living, not God's. He set the bar where he thought it should be and just moved it further and further down. And God's verdict is damning. The consequences are severe. Point two, a divided kingdom. God says to Solomon in verse 11, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet, I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. See, here we see that because Solomon has not remained faithful to God, but has become a king just like all the other kings of the nations around Israel, God will tear the kingdom away from him. More than that, the kingdom will become divided. 
God will pass all of the kingdom apart from one tribe into the hands of one of Solomon's subordinates. And if you know Israelite history, you know that it's pretty much downhill from there. The kingdom of Israel splits into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, the majority of the tribes being in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom passes into the hands of one of Solomon's subordinates called Jeroboam, just as God said it would. He receives the same instructions as Solomon in chapter 11, verse 38. The same instructions that Solomon had received from God. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. But by the end of chapter 12, it's not just Israel's king who was bowing down to idols. Rather, the new king Jeroboam now leads the Israelites themselves in worship of idols too. Claiming, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. The pattern is set. Remember what God said to Solomon would happen though if this was the case, if the kings of Israel did not follow God. In 1 Kings 9, verse 6 to 9, we read that they will be cut off from the promised land, that the temple would be destroyed, and that everyone would know that the Israelites are facing God's judgment for their rejection of him and their devotion to man-made lifeless idols that do nothing. For us reading these verses, it feels like the end of the story for the Israelites. Just like that mother who was watching Toy Story 3 where her son was playing a prank. Except this isn't a prank. It's real. It's their reality for rejecting God. For being devoted to living life their way and not living life God's way. And it's like the credits are beginning to roll down on a really devastating end for such a promising king. For such an incredible relationship that the Israelites had with their God in their midst, looking after them just as he promised to do. It feels like the end. But it's not the end of the story. See, even though we see a king with divided devotion, even though we see a divided kingdom and the beginning of the downfall of the Israelite kingdom under God's judgment, we see a God who is faithful to his people and his promises to them, even when his people are not faithful to him. You see, it's important for us to realize that none of this was a surprise to God. And none of it was enough to stop his promises from coming true, of drawing his people close to himself. Point three, a God who is faithful. For the Israelites who were reading these verses... They were experiencing the results of their own rejection of God and the result of the failure of Israel's kings to follow God how they were meant to. But they would have read verses 12 to 13 where God says to Solomon that even though he is going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon, nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. 
the Israelites would have read this and they would have realized that even though they had failed God, God wouldn't fail them. Because God had left that one tribe to the descendants of David. David's line would continue. And that meant that David's promise, that God's promise, sorry, to David in 2 Samuel 7 of that eternal kingdom being established out of his line remained. The Israelites have failed, but God hasn't. So the Israelites reading these verses would have looked to that promise, waiting for that coming eternal kingdom. And more than that, for the promised king from the line of David, of the tribe of Judah, who would come and lead them into it. Actually ends with good hope for the Israelites. But for us, thousands of years later, we can see how God has remained faithful to those promises. We know that the king has come, a king who did not fail like Solomon and those other kings, but could restore not just the Israelites' relationship with God, but ours also. Jesus, the Son of God, of the line of King David, our King and Saviour, the one who God's wrath and judgment for sin was poured out onto on the cross. The king who really is obedient to and devoted to God, who is alive today and who leads us to him. In Romans chapter 5 verse 19, we read about this king. We read, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, meaning Adam in the Garden of Eden, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. See, Jesus, through his obedience to God, makes us right with God. Later on in that same letter, in chapter 10, verse 9, it says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, Jesus has paid the penalty we deserve to pay. He alone can bring us back to that right relationship with God, despite the fact that we get living God's way wrong all the time. See, when God looks at those who trust in Jesus, he doesn't see sinful people deserving of judgment. He sees Jesus' obedience. He sees that we are right with him. The Israelites, reading 1 Kings 11, would have looked forward to the king that was to come. We know who it is. And we know how Jesus calls us to respond to him by believing in who he is and what he's done for us. And there's not a single person here who can say that they don't need Jesus. We all do. We've seen in Solomon how fruitless it is to live for anything else. And if this is news for you today, if you would like to talk more about it, Please come and chat to me or the staff here or a friend who is a Christian. God wants a relationship with you and he's offering it through his son, Jesus. For all of us today, though, what does it look like then to live a life where we seek to live God's way and not be devoted to living life our own way? Solomon is not unique in his failing to follow God how he should have. If anything, Solomon represents all of us. None of us get this right. It's why we need Jesus. Remember those words last week uh, from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. Our hearts are idol factories. Get rid of one idol and another one just takes a place. 
Our devotion is constantly torn between things, our hearts always directing the way, and so often to the wrong things. So what can we learn from Solomon about how to make sure we don't fall into the trap of becoming devoted to the wrong things? Well, firstly, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what are the areas in my life where I might be trying to compromise in my relationship with God? What are the areas in my life where I might be trying to compromise in my relationship with God? It can be really easy for us, I think, to justify the times that we do that, can't it? I mean, you can, you can imagine for Solomon how he might have justified his actions and made those compromises in his relationship with God. Uh, he could have thought to himself, well, you know, God really wants security for me on the throne and security for the Israelites. And, well, he promised me wealth and honor. So by making this alliance, I'm really just getting what God wants me to have. I mean, God wants me to have security, doesn't he? God wants me to be happy. He could have started off small like that. But then the compromises that he needed to make in those marriage alliances to keep his wives happy and not offend the surrounding nations would have started. Well, I mean, they have all those high places and make sacrifices to the idols, and I mean, they seem okay. Like, surely just one or two of these things near Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem, of course, but near it would be fine. Especially if it means that I I continue to get that security that I know God wants with me. Then the compromises grow. And suddenly, it's as if God and what he had said to Solomon fades into the back of Solomon's mind. He decides where he's going to set the bar in his relationship with God. Forgetting that God has always wanted Solomon to live God's way and God's way alone. Not the way of the world around him. So what areas in your life could you be doing this? It could be to do with your career or your relationship or what you are watching and filling your mind with on a TV or computer screen. It could be your family. What areas in your life could you be doing this? The second thing I think we can learn from Solomon here is to do with habit. See, Solomon's actions... The habits he got into making those marriage alliances, building idols and bowing down to them, those habits show that Solomon wasn't devoted to God. We are all creatures of habit. We, we all have those well-traveled uh, roads of habit in our lives. Some of them we might not even be aware of. So think, during the day, what are your habits? Can you trace one of those habits to an idol in your life? to something that is turning your heart from seeking Jesus, to trying to find some sort of satisfaction and some sort of fulfillment in something else. What are your habits? What are they ultimately leading you to? Thirdly and lastly, what I think we can learn from Solomon and his mistakes is that ultimately nothing in the world can offer to us what God wants to give us. God wants us to have real, meaningful life with our Creator, with the one who loves us and cherishes us, who we were reminded last week in the building of the temple wants us to be with Him. He has done everything to make that possible in sending His Son, Jesus. It's why it's so important for us as a church to be constantly reminding each other what it is that God has done for us through His Son, Jesus. We must never lose sight of who he is and his love for us. 
Well, over the last three Sundays, we have been reminded that true wisdom lies in pursuing relationship with God, the creator of all. We've been reminded that we all have those idols in our lives that turn us away from God. But we have been reminded again and again that we can't get it right on our own, but that Jesus can. Jesus is that king who brings us back to God and relationship with him. He is the king who laid down his life for us, who loves us. The king who calls us to follow him. Why don't I pray now and ask God that he would help us to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing love for us, shown in your son Jesus. That even though we were living lives in rejection to you, you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, that we could have a relationship with you. Thank you that even now in our lives when we do get this wrong, that you forgive us. We pray that you would help us to live lives that are devoted to you, not devoted to other things that you've created in this world that ultimately lead us away from you. Help us to look after one another in this, always pointing each other towards you, towards who Jesus is as our King. Please help us to follow him. Amen.